I'm a pretty bad student, generally. I'm a slow learner, kind of like the Israelite people, as you'll read in the Exodus, slow to, slow to learn. Um, but when I do learn, uh, when I do grasp onto something, I like, my personality is just like, I go all into it. And so this weekend, when we were uh, able to listen to N.T. Wright, he's one of my favorite theologians who I've furiously read many books of. And um, I, when it was time for him to speak, uh, I went in, can we turn me down? A little less of Colby, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, when uh, we, we, he was going to be sharing, and uh, I got to the hall that he was going to be sharing in first, I saved us uh, five seats in the second row uh, because I was really excited about it, and I was sitting there. And the night before, we were presenting, and so we got to go to a gathering of other presenters, and he was sitting over in the distance, and I sat so that I could just watch him from across. And, and then when, he, when I could see that they were wrapping up the conversation that he was at, I, I had my book, one of his favorite books, and I walked over and I got him before he went to his room and stood in front of him and shook his hand and said a nice thing to him and he signed my book. So I'm going to be selling that on eBay if you're interested. Uh, and you can take a look for that. Look. And then, the, so then we were sitting second row for the plenary adjustment and then afterwards there was a Q&A and I was really excited about that. And so I went and I got there early before everybody else and I was like, okay, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be too far away. I'd like to ask a question. And I did get to ask a question. It was really awesome. Um, uh, but I sat in the front row, and I was like, well, to fill in or whatever. So I sat in the middle in the front row, and people filled in, but they filled in nobody else in the front row. So it was me sitting in the front row, like five feet away, like closer than Louisa and I are right now, just sitting there. And so I might be getting a call from his lawyers this week. And uh, if there's any lawyers in the house, I may uh, need your help because there's a British man who's maybe upset that I was stalking him. Uh, but it really was this moment, similar to, I think, what the scripture team shared with us, uh, this moment where uh, you're, you're learning, you see this community, you're surrounded by beautiful worship, and as it's been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be. Kingdom moments and visions that we get um, throughout our lives that remind us of the way that God intends for this world to be. Um, and we're tasked with doing that. This is Camp Sunday, which is really exciting for me. Uh, I would like for our congregation to say an emphatic yes to camp, and that's not only uh, because I worked at one of our camps for nine summers. It's not only because camp experiences have enlivened new avenues of mercy and grace in my life, and it's not only because it was in Chicago that I was born, but a camp that I was born again. Despite having accepted Jesus into my heart when I was five, because experiences like camp, the reason that we're saying yes to it is because experiences like camp and those intentional communities, those mountain moments, strike me as distinctly what God wants to do in us and in our world. Like I said, I went to church like a good uh, secretary's son and I accepted Jesus into my heart, which is kind of the way that you talked about it uh, back then. Um, it was my ticket and my proof that God would uh, let me into glory someday. But to be truthful, uh, you know, uh, this was much more like into fire insurance than it was the abundant life that Jesus talks about in the, in the scriptures. It wasn't, it was really me uh, being, it was my fearful response to a promised damnation if I didn't say the right words, pray the right magical prayer. In short, 
uh, my response to life and the life that God offers me um, was a child, child's understanding of an eternal reality, a larger reality that was at work, uh, but I'd be given uh, improper words to describe. As a child, I couldn't understand that God wasn't an abusive father who was looking to ground me for eternity if I didn't apologize right, but that God is a loving and creative father who wants, who wants me to accept and live the life that wants to live within me. In the text that's been brought to us this morning by the scripture team, we see uh, this, uh, this moment where Moses is on the mountaintop speaking to God by some mystical means, and we're hearing the plans for his tabernacle, the sanctuary and dwelling place of God among his people. That's what he says. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And there's intrinsic details. I mean, there's four chapters, if you read through it this week, uh, there's four chapters of really specific instructions, and then later there's four, deta there's four detailed uh, chapters that talk about them making the temple as God asked them to be. And I'm not going to lie to you, it gets really tedious as, you know, if you've read through the Old Testament, you're like, wait a minute, like what? Why? This is kind of boring. I, I, I get that. I've been there. But if you're like, uh, like me, uh, this past week I get to sit down and I read all the way through it. And when you read um, significant portions of it, you grasp this larger thing that's going on within what is happening among the Israelite people. The plans, the failure in between, and then the building of the tabernacle. If you haven't been uh, reading along with us in the books of the Bible, that's okay. Until this last week, this is a confession, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't either. So as the pastor of this church, you are absolved. Uh, and if you want to join in, uh, you can join in with us because I'm doing the same thing. So, uh, But it's a really good thing because when you read the Bible like that, you grasp this larger thing that's going on. And for those of you that have been uh, good, better Christians than me, uh, you've been reading from the beginning, and maybe you've noticed that. You read through the story, and there's no chapter breaks or anything, and you're like, oh, there's like a larger narrative going on here, like the Harry Potter series or something like that. When you begin to view scripture in this way, your vision shifts, and when you're in the middle of these painstaking passages about instructions for building the tabernacle, all of a sudden, you get the sense that God's really interested in what we do. What we do as human beings, it's impossible to read the words of Exodus 24 through 40 and not think God really cares about the way that we build stuff, huh? Which begs, which begs the question, why does God care? Why does God care about the way the robes look or how many candlesticks there are? Why does God care about the walls that we build, what their size should be or how high they should be or who should or shouldn't be able to come beyond them? Why does God care about the way that the Israelite people order their nation? Why does God care so much about the world and the way that we do things? The answer is weaved, I think, throughout the passages, and it jumped off the page, and maybe you noticed it in the presentation today. As it's been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be. As you may have noticed, the scripture team, when, they, when we weave these passages together, the Old Testament and the New Testament, hopefully that hints at something larger that's going on. It's not just about the Israelite people because we join in their story. We join in their call to bless all nations. 
And as we hear the words of the Israelite kingdom, we should hear echoes in it of the further kingdom that Jesus came to build. The temple was torn down later, and Jesus became the temple, and the people of God became the temple. The kingdom where differences of race and nationality and gender are no longer things that divide, but things that unify us as the people of God. As we hear about the construction of a moving tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness where God dwells in Exodus, we should be reminded that we have a new temple and a new kingdom. We can't say anymore, look, it's over there, or no, it's over there, or take a left on Garfield, hop on 294, drive up to Covenant Point or Covenant Harbor, and that's the kingdom of God, because it's now among us. It's in and around us. Even in the midst of our hatreds and our idolatrous worship, the kingdom is with us here and now. God cares about the way that we have robes and the candlesticks and the walls that we build because they're instructions for the way that he wants to build his kingdom here and now. He cares deeply about the work of the carpenter, the day trader, the stay-at-home mom, the lawyer, the teacher, the politician, the student, because we're building God's temple now. Day by day and with each passing hour, we build our temple to something. Thoreau said it like this, every person is a builder of a temple called their body to the God that they worship. After a style purely their own, we can't get off by hammering marble. We are sculptors and painters and our material is our own flesh and blood and bone. We build temples in our body. We build the kingdom here and now in the things that happen in between. David Dark puts it a little bit more succinctly. He says, we're never not worshiping. We're always worshiping. Our righteous worship of God or our idolatrous worship of things, those speak to the, those speak to the reality of God's presence in our life, either the lack of it or the abundance of it. It speaks to it. And so we want God to tabernacle among us and be in our midst. Because we don't want to say, look, the kingdom's over there because it's not with me because it's among and around us, surrounding, enveloping, and calling us to greater and grander visions of love of God and self and other. Except when it's not. The story of the Israelite people, exiled refugees of conflict searching for a home that we see in Exodus, and the people of God throughout history it's not a Hallmark Channel movie where they're sitting around the table at the end and there's a freeze frame because they talk about their days and it works really well. The story of the people of God wandering in the wilderness looking for a home is one of rises and falls, of ups and downs, of people being bad students and not listening to their teacher there's a moment in it that Moses goes up to the mountain. He comes down. They've already built a calf. Like, he's gone a couple days. Look at what I did for you over here. And all, all of a sudden, you're building a calf. And there's a really funny moment that you can laugh at. It's okay. There's a moment where Moses comes down and he says to Aaron, Aaron, what happened? And he said, I put the gold inside of the fire and out came this ox. What an idiot. I mean, like, <laughs> God <laughs> laughed at him. And we laugh at him, but often that's our excuse as well. 
The story of God's people is rising and falling of painful progress over time. Uh, my favorite theologian this weekend described it as a bicycle wheel that rises and falls but moves forward nonetheless. It's the story of people failing to choose justice in the face of injustice, but doing a little bit better the next time. Choosing hatred instead of love, but doing a little bit better the next time. Of choosing war and hateful conflict instead of peace, but becoming a little bit more peaceful day by day. It's a story of people rather than living into the calling to bless all nations, seeking to bless only their own or those that look like them but doing a little bit better the next time. And that's okay. I want to say that this morning. That motion, rising and falling, I think that that's the natural progression of people. It's okay, but I would also say it's not good. It's not the, like in the way that God, you know, when he looked at creation, he said, like, it's good. It's okay, but it's not what we aspire to. The people of God ought not settle for life that's just okay, but ought to keep looking and living for those greater and grander visions of a kingdom here and now. Of living into a story of unity and communion in the face of division, of acceptance rather than rejection, of broadening borders for all rather than closed ones. As it's been shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be. We're given visions of a kingdom and we're called to build it. Like the song that we sang at the beginning of the service, we are your church. We pray, revive this earth. As I said earlier, uh, when I went to camp, that was kind of when I allowed life uh, in for the like more dramatic, the more dramatic moment. You know, I grew up, I was never a bad kid. I grew up and I was the secretary's son, all these different things. But it was in that place and in camp, in that mountain, top experience that I allowed the life that wanted to live in me really in and out. It was a similar experience to that of Moses, I think, given a vision and a plan. And it was one of those beautiful moments, uh, a particular night that we had, um, there was, uh, I don't know exactly what we were doing. Uh, probably throughout the day, I had been wearing any number of different costumes, uh, running around camp differently. and doing worship and all these different things. Uh, there's a song, The Pirates Who Don't Do Anything, and it's pirates who don't do anything. We just stay at home and lie around. And it's not about God. It's not about God at all. It's not a worship, I mean, it's not a worship song in the sense that it speaks directly about God, but it's one of those things that's really beautiful. So I was probably singing that song, and then later in the day, probably singing the more beautiful words, but with the same abandon and joy. I saw the light. I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord. Right? It was one of those days at camp where all those wonderfully random things seemingly come together. And I was walking home back to, you know, it was dark out. And when you're walking home in the UP and it's dark and the stars are out, they're out. They're like up there. And I walked out onto the dock and it was just beautiful. And I sat there for a little while, sat at the end of the dock and then I laid down and I looked at it and then I sat up and then the stars didn't really stop at the horizon because the lake was so still and it just came up and it was all around me, just kind of sitting there. 
And I don't know what it was about the day or whatever. I was kind of caught up in the stillness or the silliness of the moment, one or the other. And I went to the edge of the dock because I just was overcome with something. I went to the edge of the dock. I leaned over the edge, and I stuck my head all the way in the water. And I blew bubbles under the water. And I brought it up, and it was dripping with water. And I just felt like an idiot, <laughs> like a total fool. Like it was something about it. But there was something about the moment that was one of those mountain moments, like as it's been shown to you on the mountain, as it's been shown to you here, that's the way it's supposed to be. There's these moments on the mountain, and maybe you've had them, where we feel the nudging of, as it's been shown to you here, in this place, in this moment, that's the way it should be. Those are tabernacle moments where God dwells among us, where we glimpse the goodness of Eden, and we see the future of a new creation and we get to join the work in the in-between. Visions of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And we ought to hear those words of Exodus cried out like they did to Moses. Sometimes those are a little bit more simple, maybe a little bit more ridiculous than sticking your head in, uh, in the lake to be drenched in a moment, a conversation or a secular song that's somehow way more holy than something that you've experienced all week. It's moments like these where our face shines like Moses when he came out of the tabernacle, and we feel life within us, and we're ready to continue the work of making God's dwelling place here and now rather than then and later. Moments where we see a moment, a vision of God in a kingdom with broadening borders, sowing seeds of love and community even in the face of division and hatred, of an embracing community that doesn't see differences between brother and sister, and we work towards the end of an eternal kingdom in the face of worshiping or pledging allegiance to anything other than the kingdom of God. Friends, make no mistake, we live eternal lives, but then and later doesn't come for us. There's only here and now. We're not going to get another world to build God's kingdom in. We've got to make do with what we got. And so let's live and build eternal with kingdom visions of the mountain plan. And it's okay if we rise and fall, like the bicycle wheel that keeps moving onward. But don't settle. Don't settle for less. And look for those moments. Seek those moments out. And when you have them, make note of them and say, oh, because God... Because God spoke to me in this moment, and because I've had this vision, I seek to live into a new and unfolding story of a new creation that env envelopes us and surrounds us and gives us a greater and grander vision of the things to come. May it be so in our lives. Amen.